0: Good morning, everyone. Hope everybody had a good week. Time is sure flying by. So we got through our first book, Study in Scarlet. It was very interesting. Very good. Learned lots about our two characters. We learned a few things about the police force in England. And a couple of our characters in the police force, like Lestrade and Gregson and whoever else came around there. Oh, yeah, it was uh, John Rance and people like that and a few other characters like Jefferson Hope, and I'm sure they'll be referred to in the next book, which we're gonna dive into here in a second. So the next book that was written after the study in Scarlet, the second book, The Sign of Four, The Sign of the Four, The Four, The Sign of the Four. So it just starts off with the uh, Sherlock and this little sidekick Watson there just talking back and forth about, you know, the kind of work that Sherlock does and Watson suggests a few things and this and that. They're just basically at home and chewing the fat, we'll say. Waiting for their next case. So let's begin. The Sign of the Four, Chapter 1. The Science of Deduction. And yes, that was in chapter two of the first book. It's a different story, though. The Science of Deduction Sherlock Holmes took his bottle from the corner of the mantelpiece and his hypodermic syringe from its neat Morocco case. With his long, white, nourished fingers, he adjusted the delicate needle, rolled back his left shirt cuff. For some little time, his eyes rested thoughtfully upon the Muscle, forearm, and wrist, all dotted and scarred with numerous puncture marks. Finally, he thrust a sharp point home, pressed down the tiny piston, and sunk back into the velvet lined armchair with a long sigh of satisfaction. Three times a day for many months I had witnessed the performance, but custom had not reconciled my mind to it. On the contrary, from day to day I had become more irritable at the sight and my conscience swelled nightly within me at the thought that I had lacked the courage to protest against this. Again and again I had registered a vow that I should deliver my soul upon the subject. But there was, a, there was that in the cool, nonchalant air of my companion, which made him the last man with whom one would care to take anything approaching to a liberty. His great powers, his masterly manner, and the experience of I had had have his many extraordinary qualities and made me timid in backward and backward in crossing him so old watson here is definitely thinking twice before telling sherlock that he's doing something wrong we'll see how it rolls out here but that afternoon whether it was the red wine which i had taken with my lunch or the additional exasperation produced by the extreme deliberation of his manner, I suddenly felt that I could out, could hold out no longer. So Watson is going to speak up, finally. What is it today? I asked. Morphine or cocaine? He raised his eyes sluggishly from the old black letter volume he had opened up. It is cocaine, he said. A 7% solution. Would you care to try some? No, indeed, I answered sharply. My constitution is not got over the Afghan campaign yet. I cannot afford to throw any extra strain upon it. He smiled at my passion. Perhaps you are right, Watson, he said. I suppose that its influence is physically a bad one. I find it, however, so transcendently stimulating and clarifying to the mind that its secondary action is a small matter of, of a moment let me repeat that and clarifying to the mind that a secondary action is a matter of a small moment in other words it doesn't concern them at all but consider i said earnestly count the cost your brain may as you say be roused and excited but it is a pathological and a morbid process which involves increased tissue change and may at last leave a permanent weakness. You know, too, what a black reaction comes upon you. Surely the game is hardly worth the candle. In other words, surely the gain is hardly worth the price you got to pay for the use of it, especially with cocaine. Why should you, for a mere passing pleasure, risk the loss of those great powers with which you have been endowed. Remember that I speak not only as one comrade to another, but as a medical man, to the one for whose constitution he is to some extent answerable. So he knows what he's talking about, in other words. He did not seem to be offended, though. On the contrary, he put his fingertips together, leaned his elbows on the arms of the chair, like one who has a relish for conversation. My mind said Sherlock, rebels at stagnation. Give me problems, give me work, give me the most difficult cryptogram and the most intricate analysis and I'm in with my own proper atmosphere. I can dispense them with artificial stimulants, but I detest the dull routine of existence. I crave mental exaltation. That is why I've chosen my own particular profession or rather created my own particular profession, for I am the only one in the world. The only unofficial detective, I said, raising my eyebrows. The only unofficial consulting detective, said Sherlock. I'm the last in the highest court of appeal and detection. When Gregson and Lestrade and, or Jones are out of their depths, which, by the way, is their normal state, the matter is laid before me. I examined the data as an expert, and pronounce a specialist's opinion. I claim no credit in such cases. My name figures in no newspaper. The work itself, the pleasure of finding a field of my peculiar powers, is my highest reward. But you have yourself had some experience of my methods of work in a Jefferson Hope case. Yes, indeed, I said cordially. I was never so struck by anything in my life. I even embodied it in a small brochure with a somewhat fantastic title of Ready, folks? A Study in Scarlet, our first book. (laughs) He shook his head sadly. I glanced over it, said said Sherlock. Honestly, I cannot congratulate you upon that. Detection is, or ought to be, an exact science. You should be treated in the same cold and unemotional manner. You have attempted to tinge it with romanticism, which produces the same effect as if worked a love story or an elopement of the fifth proposition of Euclid. But the romance was there. I could not tamper with the facts, I I shouted. Some facts should be suppressed, or at least just a sense of proportion should be observed in treating them. The only point in the case reserved mention was the curious analytical reasoning from the effects to the causes by which I succeeded in unraveling it. I was annoyed at the criticism of a work which had been specially designed to please him. I confess too that I was irritated by the egotism, which seemed to demand that every line of my pamphlet should be devoted to his own special doings. Sounds like Watson's had enough of Sherlock's big, huge ego. More than once during the years that I had lived with him in Baker Street, I had observed a small vanity underlie underlay my companion's quiet, didactic manner. In other words, patronizing patronizing manner. I made no remark, however, but sat nursing my wounded leg. I had had a jizzled bullet through it some time before, as you know. And though it did not prevent me from walking, it ached rarely at every change of the weather. My practice has extended recently to the continent, said Holmes. After a while filling up his old briar root pipe, I was consulted last week by Francois de Villard, who, as you probably know, has come rather to the front lately in the French detective service, moving up to the ranks. He has all the Celtic power of quick intuition, but he's deficient in the wide range of exact knowledge, which is essential to the hard developments of his art. The case was concerned with a will and possessing features of interest. I was able to affirm the two parallel cases, the one at Riga, 1857, and the other at St. Louis in 1871, which have suggested to him the true solution. Here is the letter which I had this morning acknowledging my assistance. He tossed over as he spoke a crumpled sheet of foreign note paper. I glanced my eyes down, catching the profusion of notes of admiration. Proven to the ardent admiration of the freshman towards Sherlock, praising him in all kinds of manners. He speaks as a pupil to his master, said I. Oh, he rates my assistance too highly, said Sherlock Holmes. He has considerable gifts himself. He possesses two out of three qualities necessary for an ideal detective. He has the power of observation and that of deduction. He's only wanting in knowledge, and that may come in time. He's now translating my small works into French. What? Wait, your works? Oh, didn't you know? He cried laughing. Yes, I have been guilty of several monographs. They're all upon technical subjects, and we know which ones he's referring to from the first book. Here, for example, is one upon the distinction between the ashes of various tobaccos. In it I enumerate one hundred forty forms of cigar, cigarette, pipe tobacco, with colored plates illustrating the difference in the ash. It is a point which is continually turning up in criminal trials if you can say definitely for example, that some murder has been done by a man who is smoking the Indian Lunka. It obviously narrows your fields of research. To the trained eye, there is no, much difference between the black ash of a trichinopoly and the white fluff of a bird's eye as there is between a cabbage and a potato. <laughs> you have an extraordinary genius for the minute, I remarked. I appreciate their importance. Here is my monograph upon the tracing of the footsteps, with some remarks upon the uses of Plaster of Paris as a preserver of the impresses. Here, too, is a curious to work upon the influence of a trade upon a form of the hand with lithiotypes of the hands of slaters, sailors, cork cutters, comp- compositors, weavers, and diamond polishers. That is a matter of great practical interest as a scientific detective, especially in cases of unclaimed bodies or discovering the wrongdoings of criminals. But I weary, with, but I weary you with my, with my hobby, don't I? Oh, not at all, I answered earnestly. Not at all, said Watson. It is of a great interest to in me, especially since I've led, had the opportunity to observe in your practical application of it. But you spoke just now of observation and deduction. Surely the one to some extent implies the other. In other words, they're pretty much both the same, he said. Why, hardly, he answered, leaning back comfortably in his armchair and sending a thick blue smoke from his pipe for example, observation shows me that you have been to the Wigmore Street Post Office this morning. But deduction lets me know that you dispatched a telegram. Right, said I, right on both points. But I confess that I don't see how you arrived at it. It was a sudden impulse on my part, and I have mentioned it to no one. It is simplicity itself, he remarked. Chuckling at my surprise, so strikingly simple that an explanation is unnecessary, and yet it may serve to define the limits of observation and of deductions. Observation tells me you have a little reddish mold adhering to your instep. Just opposite the Bigmore Street post office, they have taken up the pavement and thrown up some earth which lies in such a way that it's difficult to avoid treading in it when you're entering the post office. The earth has this peculiar reddish tinge which is found, so far as I know, nowhere else in the neighborhood. So much so much is observation. The rest is deduction. Well, then how did you deduce I sent the telegram? asked Watson. Why, of course I knew you had not written a letter, since I sat opposite to you all morning. I see also in your open desk there that you have a sheet of stamps and a thick bundle of postcards. What could you go to the post office for then, but other than to send a wire? Eliminate all other factors, and the one which remains must be the truth. In this case, it is certainly so, I replied after a little thought. The thing, however, is, as you say, of the simplest. Would you think, would you think me rude if I were to put theories to a, your theories more to a severe test? So he's going to go and test old Sherlock here. I hope he does. Hope he realizes what he's doing. On the contrary, answered Sherlock, it would prevent me from taking the second dose of cocaine. <laughs> I should be delighted to look at that, any problem which you might sub- submit to me. So it sounds like Sherlock has one of two things that stimulates his mind: a problem to solve or a hit of cocaine. Both in equal in its effects. (laughs) I have heard you say that it is difficult for a man to have any object in his daily use without leaving the impress of his individuality upon it, in such a way that a trained observer might be able to read it. Now, I have here a watch which has recently come into my possession. Would you have the kindness to let me have an opinion upon the character or habits of its late owner? I handed him the watch with some slight feeling of amusement in my heart. <laughs> For the test was, as I thought, an impossible one, and I intended it as a lesson against a somewhat dogmatic tone which he equo- which he occasionally assumed. Sorry, folks. He balanced the watch in his hand, gazed hard at the dial, opened the back, examined the works, first with his naked eyes, and then with a the powerful magnifying glass. I could hardly keep from smiling at his crestfallen face when he finally snapped the case closed and handed it back to me. There is hardly any data, he remarked. The watch has been recently cleaned, which robs me of my most suggestive facts. You are right, I answered. It was cleaned before being sent to me. In my my heart, I accused my companion of bringing forward the most lame and impotent excuse to cover his failure. What data can you expect from a clean, unclean watch, I, said, I asked. Though unsatisfactory, my research has not been entirely barren. So he did see, find a few things. He observed, staring up at the ceiling with dreamy, lackluster eyes. <laughs> Moving on. Subject to, your cor- to, subject to your correction, I should judge that the watch belonged to your elder brother who inherited it from your father. That you gather no doubt from the HW upon the back, said Watson. Quite so. The W suggests your own name. The date of the watch is nearly 50 years back, and the initials are as old as the watch, so it was made for the last generation. Jewelry usually descends to the eldest son, and he's most likely to have the same name as his father. Your father has, if I remember right, been dead for many years. Is therefore been in the hands of your brother. Right so far I said, anything else? I can just see old Watson just shaking his head. He was a man of untidy habits, very untidy and careless. He was left with good prospects, but he threw away his chances. Lived for some time in poverty, with occasional short intervals of prosperity, and finally taken to drink, he died. That is all I can gather. Well, I sprang from my chair and went impatiently about the room, a considerable bitterness in my heart. He just was completely upset. This is unworthy of you, Holmes, said I. How can I believe that you have descended to this? You made inquiries into the history of my unhappy brother, and now you pretend to deduce this knowledge in some fanciful way. You cannot expect me to believe that you have read all that from this old watch. It is unkind, and, to speak plainly, has a touch of shallowism in it, all over it. My dear, dear doctor, he said kindly, pray accept my apologies. Viewing the matter as an abstract problem, I had forgotten how personal and painful a thing it might be to you. I assure you, however, that I never even knew that you had a brother until you had me the watch. Then how in the name of all that is wonderful did you get all these facts? They're absolutely correct in every particular way. Ah, That is good luck. I can only say that was the balance of probability. I did not expect it all to be so accurate. But it was not mere guesswork. And we're fixing to find out right here. No, 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 no. I never guess. It is a shocking habit. Destructive to the logical faculty. I can't see Sherlock guessing on anything. What seems strange to you is only to... Only so because you do not follow my train of thought or observe small facts upon which large inferences may depend. For example, I began saying that your brother was careless. When you observe the lower part of the watch case, you notice that it is not only dented in two places, but it is cut and marked all over from the habit of keeping other hard objects, such as coins and keys, in the same pocket with it. Surely it is no great feat to assume that a man who treats a fifty guinea watch so carelessly must be a careless man. Now there is a very far-fetched inference that a man who inherits one article of such value is pretty well provided for in other respects. In other words, he's got all kinds of money going on there from someone else. The old silver spoon theory here. I acknowledge to show that I followed his reasoning. It is very customary for pawnbrokers in England, when they take a watch, to scratch the number of the ticket with a pinpoint upon the inside of the case. It is more handy than the label, and there is no risk of the number being lost or transposed. There are no less than four such numbers visible to my lens on the inside of the case, telling me that your brother was often at low water. Secondary inference that he had occasionally bursts of prosperity, or he could have not redeemed the pledge. So in other words, he had every now and then he made enough money to get the watch back from the pawnbroker. Finally I asked you to look at the inner plate which contains the keyhole. Look at the thousands of scratches all around the keyhole. Marks where the key has slipped. What silver man's keys could have scored those grooves? But you'll never see a drunkard's watch without them. He winds it at night and leaves these traces of his unsteady hand. Where is the mystery in all this? Well, it's clear as daylight, I answered. <laughs> I regret even the injustice which I did to you. I should have more faith in your marvelous faculty. You may I ask whether you have any professional inquiry on foot at present? Talk about changing the subject real quick. Well, Watson, there, none. Hence the cocaine. I can't live without brain work. What else is there to live for? Stand at the window here. Was there ever such a dreary, dismal, unprofitable world? See all the yellow fog swirls down the street and dips across the dun-colored houses. Who could be more hopelessly prosaic and material? What is use of having powers, doctor, when no one has no field upon which to exert them? Crime is commonplace, and existence is commonplace, and no qualities save those which are commonplace have any function upon this earth. I had opened my mouth to reply to his tirade when a crisp knock, our landlady entered, bearing a card upon a brass tray. A young lady for you, sir, she said, addressing my companion, Miss Mary Motsden. He read, hmm, I have not recollection of that name. Ask the young lady to step up, Mrs. Hudson. Don't go, doctor. I prefer that you remain. So, now we're coming on to the next case. So next week's going to be very interesting now that we're done with these two trying to outwit each other. And now we know that Sherlock Holmes is addicted to cocaine. Now, is that in one of the movies, you wonder? I don't know. I'll have to research that and find out. I will let everybody know. I don't think I've ever seen uh, drug use in any of these Sherlock movies. I can't remember. i never really put any mind to it until now. All right, folks. Have yourselves a great week. Uh, Next weekend is Thanksgiving. We'll still do a podcast on Sunday. And we'll go, from, we'll go to uh, Chapter 2, and there'll be a quick review of Chapter 1, because there wasn't much going on there, really. Just the introduction of the next case, basically. And listen to those two go at each other for a while. All right, folks, have a great week. Thanks for listening, and please spread the word if you can. I appreciate it very much. Thank you.